Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is where we are. Our study this morning is going to bring us to the end of chapter 9, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. These are part of a study that we've been doing. If, if you've come recently, uh, maybe for the first time today or in recent weeks, you're you're jumping into the middle of a study here that we began uh, several months ago in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we have seen that these chapters are crucial. These are crucial chapters in helping us understand the world in which we live, even today. We believe that the Bible is relevant. We believe that the Bible is as one preacher has said, more relevant and more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper. And so we look to the Word of God for our guidance this morning, and these chapters in Genesis are crucial in helping us understand the world we live in. They are crucial in helping us form an accurate view, a proper and biblical worldview. These chapters teach us, first and foremost, who God is and how He has designed the world, and how He has intended for humanity to function. If we are going to make any sense of the world we live in today, if we are going to make any sense of the circumstances we face from one day to the next, and why things are the way they are, then we must begin here. Look at the world around us today. Look at our political climate. Look at our social climate. Look at the frustrations that even you have to face from one day to the next. Is it not confusing? Is it not bewildering? Some of the senseless things we see around us all the time. If we are going to make any sense of that, we have to begin in God's Word. And in God's Word, we need to begin at the foundation. And so these foundational chapters, not just of Genesis, but of the entire Bible, teach us who God is. They teach us how He created this world. They teach us what went wrong and what God plans to do about it. Indeed, what He is doing about it. If we don't accept and if we don't understand the worldview that is presented in these chapters, then we will be left confused and deceived about God, about our own design and our own purpose. We will be deceived about the basics of right and wrong. We will be deceived and confused about the true problem of mankind and about the true solution to our problems. And if that's true, then really, honestly, it should be no surprise to us in a society that has wholeheartedly rejected God's authority and God's design and God's command, that this confusion and deception is all around us today. And we will find no help there. And it's been that way throughout history. And so we look to the Word of God. We look to the mind of God. And as I've thought about it, as I've looked back on what we've covered so far in Genesis 1 through 9, really we see a contrast. 
In fact, I think we could call it a battle, a constant tension between a biblical worldview with God at the center and an unbiblical view with man at the center. And there's this constant war going on throughout Genesis. A biblical worldview seeks to know God and to submit to His sovereignty, and it experiences His blessing. But an unbiblical worldview rejects God's authority, it exalts man as sovereign, and it experiences God's curse and judgment. And we've seen that so far all throughout these chapters. We saw God's perfect creation of all things and their perfect design in chapters 1 and 2. But then we saw the rejection of God's command and the self-exalting rebellion of mankind in chapter 3. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we saw a contrast between the ungodly lineage of Cain and the godly lineage of Seth. One line growing deeper into sin, characterized by sexual perversion and violence, the other line remaining devoted to God and characterized by their worship of Him. But then in chapters 6 through 9, we see the culmination of man's sinfulness. Mankind, by chapter 6 through 9, by chapter 6, had become thoroughly corrupt. And so, God completely wipes them out. He wipes out the entire planet and all its population with a catastrophic and universal flood. He only saves one man with his wife, their three sons, and their wives. Eight people in total. That's it. Eight people whom God had sovereignly set apart and rescued from His judgment on earth. And not only do we see that contrast, but all along we see the beginning of a pattern and a storyline that will carry on throughout all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, we have a record of the history of mankind. A record of the history of mankind from the very beginning to the very end, and it is a record from God's perspective. Not from man's experience, but from God's perspective. And that, re that record has a particular focus that develops progressively throughout the Bible. That focus, or that storyline, if we want to call it that, is the gospel. It's the good news of how God conquers sin and saves His people. That storyline begins with creation. God's perfect design of all things and His perfect fellowship with mankind but then that storyline moves on to the fall and shows us where everything went wrong and how that fellowship became broken. It shows us the origin and nature and devastating consequences of sin, separating us from God, condemning us to eternal judgment. And then that storyline moves on and teaches us about redemption. God's gracious provision of a Savior, Jesus Christ, to rescue His people from sin and its judgment, and to reconcile us to God and make peace. And then the storyline culminates in re-creation or restoration. The final judgment of all sin and all sinners and the internal glorification of His people in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the big picture of what God is doing throughout Scripture. 
And we have in Genesis 6 through 9 a condensed glimpse of that storyline. We're seeing, in essence, all four of those categories from creation to fall to, to, uh, to redemption and then restoration. In Genesis 6 through 9, we have the account of Noah and the great flood. But if you'll remember, I've said several times throughout this study that that account of Noah and the great flood is not really about Noah, nor is it about the great flood. It is primarily about God, about His holiness and His righteousness and His justice and judgment, and about His mercy and grace and salvation. So now as we come to the end of chapter 9, the official conclusion of this account of Noah and the great flood, we might have great hopes for Noah. The bar has been set high with Noah and this new world. The world has been washed clean, if you will, by the waters of God's judgment. And with God's promise of a deliverer from chapter 3, verse 15, maybe still in our minds, we might expect that Noah is this deliverer. That would be a natural conclusion to the story if this is all we knew. After all, Noah was the only man pre-flood to be called righteous. He walked with God. He lived an exemplary life for 600 years to this point. And now, with his family, he enters into this new world saved by God from judgment that wiped the rest of the world clean. But before we get our, our hopes too high, before we get the wrong idea about who Noah really was, our text for today re reveals to us that the world was still not totally clean. You see, all people are sinners. Romans 3 teaches us. Even the most righteous among us are not truly righteous before God on our own. And that includes Noah and his family. They are still sinners. And with them there is still sin on the earth. And so they are still in need of grace from God. And while this whole account of the flood and the deliverance from God, and while it gives us a picture of ultimate salvation, it is only just that, a picture. It points to a greater Savior, to a greater salvation, and a greater new creation. This is not the end of the story here. And so in our text for today, we are going to see sin and a curse. But we are also going to see blessing and grace. At the heart of this text is an honest acknowledgement of human sinfulness. But it's also a hopeful revelation of a faithful God who remembers His promises and delivers His people. This passage caps off a spectacular story. But it caps it off with a reminder not to place our hope and trust in Noah nor in ourselves, but in God alone and the Savior that He has sent. So, let's look at our text. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. I want us to work through this passage today in six stages, two verses apiece if you're following through. Two verses each, six stages. This passage begins with great hopefulness, but drops very quickly into sorrow, but then rises again to hope at the very end. So notice, first of all, then, that the passage begins with growth, and by that I mean population growth. Population growth. Look at verses 18 and 19. We read about the sons of Noah who were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We have that little parenthetical statement, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. These really are just a couple of introductory verses that are setting the stage for the rest of the passage. Now the focus is beginning to shift from Noah to his sons and then the descendants that would come from them. But that little side note there, that Ham was the father of Canaan, shows that Ham is going to be a key focal point of the passage. But the mention of Canaan is important too, as we're going to see as we go along. Why is the mention of Canaan important? Well, for two reasons. First of all, Canaan is the one who receives the curse later in the text. Right? That's important, by the way. Understand that, uh, and I'll say this just in passing, Right, this passage has been used in history to justify particular aspects of racism based on the curse of Ham. This text doesn't curse Ham. This text curses Canaan. That's important to remember. But there's a second reason that this mention is important. Remember who wrote this passage. Moses. And to whom was he writing? The people of Israel. And where were the people of Israel when they were receiving this passage? They were in the wilderness getting ready to walk into the promised land. And who were they going to conquer as they walked into the promised land? The Canaanites. This passage then gives the context for Israel's conflict and for their defeat of Canaan in the promised land. But where do we see the growth and the hope that I've mentioned? Where do we see this, this hopeful beginning? Well, that comes from the end of verse 19. 
in that point that from these, that is from these three sons of Noah, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. That should point our attention back to the beginning of chapter 9, shouldn't it? And it should even point our attention back to chapter 1 in the original creation mandate. God created the world. God put mankind into the world that he said what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in chapter 9, after the flood was over, God once again reestablishes his, his mandate in, a, in an exercise of hope and blessing for mankind, saying, look, you're still here for the same reasons. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That was part of God's renewed blessing, and it is being fulfilled. God had promised to care for them. He had promised to establish them and to prosper them in this new world, and He fulfills and keeps His promise. And that gives a great sense of hope, doesn't it? To them, as they wonder what their future is going to look like, it gives a great sense of hope to us who read it, because we see a picture of hope in the mercy and grace and blessing of God, even in a sinful world in spite of our own sinfulness. So this passage begins with hope, a reminder about God's blessing and the growth of mankind in the earth and the joy that that is. But very quickly, this passage also reminds us of mankind's continual sinfulness. And that's what we see in verses 20 and 21. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, that's quite a surprise, isn't it? This is a new aspect to the whole story. We didn't expect this of Noah. Some of us still, even after reading it, have a hard time believing it of Noah, don't we? To this point, Scripture has presented Noah in nothing but, but glowing terms. He lived an exemplary life. As I've mentioned already, he's the only person pre-flood to be called righteous. We're told in chapter 6, verse 9, that he was blameless and that he walked with God. And Hebrews 11 lists him as one of the heroes of the faith. But it's important to notice that with every hero in Scripture, every godly leader among God's people throughout Scripture, God is always forthright about their sinfulness too. From Noah to Abraham to Joseph to David to Solomon to the disciples to the Apostle Paul, all the way through, Scripture does not hide the fact that these men are just men and they are sinners and they are in need of grace too. We are meant to see these men as exemplary and we are to follow their example in the faith but we are not meant to see them as the Savior. Because there is one greater who is the Savior, and we are to look to Him. And their lives are meant to point us to Him. And these verses show us why all of this was true of Noah. That he too was a sinner in need of God's grace. He was an exemplary, godly man, but he was also flawed and sinful. Now, what happened to Noah? Well, in verse 20, we read that Noah became a farmer. That could indicate that he had not been a farmer before the flood. In fact, I tend to think it was likely. 
Why? Because what was Noah before the flood? A carpenter. <laughs> he spent 120 years building that ark. I don't know what he did before that. But now, after the flood, he is adjusting to this new life in this post-flood world, the new climate, the new conditions of the earth, and maybe even this new profession. He is doing what he needs to do to provide for his family, to feed for his family, to survive in this world. And that is good. And so he plants a vineyard. And that is good. In fact, in Scripture, the fruit of the vine is often portrayed as a blessing to mankind, and it is a delight to God's people. But Scripture also issues a warning about the fruit of the vine, that there is a particular danger in it, and it's a warning that Noah would have done well to heed. Because in verse 21, we see that what God had given as a blessing, Noah misused for sin. Now, some have suggested that Noah would not have known about the fermentation process at this point, as if it was a post-flood thing. I suppose that could be the case, but I doubt it. I doubt it. But either way, Noah becomes drunk. The scripture has some strong and harsh things to say about drunkenness, doesn't it? It issues a strong warning to God's people of the sinfulness of drunkenness. It is not something to be trifled with or taken lightly because drunkenness is contrary to walking in the Spirit. And it is contrary to demonstrating new life in Christ. Drunkenness not only harms your reputation, but it harms Christ's testimony. And at the heart of the sin of drunkenness is the loss of control, the dulling of the senses, the loss of discernment, and the removal of inhibitions. So not only does Noah become drunk, but as a result of that and all the effects of that, he uncovers himself and he lies exposed in his shame. Now, that sin, when compared to so many other sins, seems like such a small thing, right? I mean, after all, it's just Noah. He's by himself. He's in his own tent. There's the privacy of his own home. It's not like he went out and murdered somebody like Lamech did, right? But I think that's part of the point that God wants us to see here. Big, egregious sins are not the only sins that are a problem, are they? Small sins, seemingly insignificant sins, are a big deal too. This is where we get ourselves tripped up very often, isn't it? Well, it's just a little sin. I don't have to worry too much about that one. That's just between me and myself, right? We no one even knows about that, right? We're learning here that small sins are a big deal too, and, and private sins are never as private as we think they are. It always affects other people. So no sin, no matter how small we think it is compared to others, is to be taken lightly. And we are never in a good spot to let our guard down. We must always be vigilant. Think about Noah's life for a second. To this point, Noah had lived a full life. 
he was 600 years old. Think about that. If you want to make it more true to your life, okay, just take a zero off the 600 and the 950 and the 350, right? Just, all right, say 60, right? That's getting close to retirement age in our culture, isn't it? This was a, this was a man who had lived a, a, a full life. He had been faithful. He had accomplished some great things, hadn't he? He had stood firm. He had fought hard battles. He had been faithful to God at the most difficult times. He's been faithful for 600 years. Surely by this point, he has reached a level of maturity where he doesn't have to trifle with these little temptations anymore, right? Surely he has reached the point to look back and let his identity be in what's already passed. And now he can let his guard down. He can take his ease and relax. Right? You say, of course not. Right. But is that not how many people think today? Whether we're young or whether we're old, we come through some battle that we've seen some great spiritual victory. We've stood firm and we rejoice in the fact that God helped us to be faithful. And so we let our guard down. We become vulnerable. And is that not when we often fall? Or perhaps one thinks he has lived a faithful life into his retirement years and now he can take his ease from serving God. Beware, brothers and sisters. Beware. That is when you are most vulnerable. Noah's sin serves as a powerful warning to us. We are never far removed from temptation. Why? Because sin is not on the other side of the fence. Sin is within our own hearts. We are still sinners. We are still sinful. Even for the most godly among us, we must be vigilant at all times. We must always be on guard against the deceptive schemes of the devil and of our own flesh. But again, Noah's sin is not the main point of this text. In fact, since Noah is still a godly man, we can conclude, and by the context of this passage and by uh, other passages about Noah, we can conclude that Noah repented, that he was forgiven and that he moved on. But this story takes another dark turn when we come to verses 22 and 23, and we see the response of Noah's sons particularly Ham, because Ham's response added to the sin. Verse 22, we read, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on, their sh- on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their, fa- their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. There were two responses here. The response of Ham... And then the response of the other two brothers, Shem and Japheth. One response was sinful, one was godly. But what was Ham's sin? What was wrong with what Ham did? Some have suggested that there was some sort of sexual perversion or immorality that happened in this scene. The text does not say that. 
We cannot conclude that from what the text tells us. All we see in verse 22 is that Ham saw his father in this shameful condition, and then he went and told his brothers. But the language of the text that's used and the context, along with the responses of his brothers and even of Noah once he sobered up, makes it clear that what Ham was doing in this moment was dishonoring his father through scorn and mockery. Now, I don't know what's, what Ham's spiritual state was really like. And I don't know what kind of relationship Ham had with his father up to this point. But his response to Noah's shame in this instance shows a wicked heart. It shows a twisted sense of humor. It shows a twisted delight in seeing others dishonored. It was not a heart of love, nor was it a heart of respect to his father. But on the contrary, it was a heart of hate. Delighting in the sin and the humiliation of others. But in sharp contrast to Ham, we see the response of Shem and Japheth. In verse 23, they don't just come in and cover their father. They go out of their way to make sure that they don't even see it. Or at least they don't see it any more than absolutely necessary. They turn around backwards. They hold up a blanket and they go in and cover their father. This is a heart of love. This is a heart of honor for their father. Seeing their father in a shameful state, they don't find it a source of entertainment. They come along and they cover his shame. So we have a contrast here, another bit of tension. Ham's response was one of arrogance and hatred and wickedness. He was like many today who are entertained by perversion, who even take a twisted delight in the sinful humiliation of others. That is a huge part of the sinful society we live in today. And I suspect that all of us can find some evidence of it in our own hearts if we really think about it. When those moments creep up, when we take a twisted delight, when one of our rivals or our enemies is humiliated, right? But the response of Shem and Japheth was one of humility and love and godliness. These men recognized that human sinfulness is a sad reality but for them, love, as we read in 1 Peter 4, love covers a multitude of sins. We need to remember that as well. In our own actions, exercising humility regarding ourselves in our own vulnerability to sin, and exercising grace, extending grace toward others when they do sin. Well, if verses 22 and 23 show us the response of the sons to Noah's humiliation, then verses 24 through 27 show us Noah's response to their response. And so in verses 24 and 25, Noah responds, first of all, to Ham, and he responds with a curse. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
The text doesn't say how Noah knew what had happened, but it's no stretch of the imagination to assume that one of those three brothers told him what happened after he sobered up. Perhaps Shem or Japheth went to their father in loving confrontation to talk to him about what happened. We don't know, but he found out. And however he found out, Noah's response was to pronounce a curse, reminding us yet again that the way of sin is not the way of blessing and freedom, but it is the way of curse and bondage, as we see that played out in the results of this curse. But notice, as I've mentioned already, Noah's curse was not on Ham, but on Canaan. And that wasn't even Ham's firstborn. We'll find out in chapter 10 that Canaan was the youngest of four sons for Ham. Why did Noah curse Canaan when he found out? Well, we're not actually told why. Perhaps there was something about Canaan's life and character that they could see he was following in the footsteps of this sinful pattern in Ham. Maybe that had something to do with it. But we just don't know, and we should not get distracted with speculation about things that are not clear. What we do know, as the story goes on, what we do know is that this is the sovereign hand of God at work here, using even the sinful actions of mankind to establish and accomplish His divine plan for redemption. And that is a theme that will go all the way through Scripture. That God is sovereign even over the sinful behavior of men so that he turns even rebellion against him into fulfillment of his plan of redemption. Have you ever thought that the most amazing point of human history, the salvation of, of mankind, the salvation of God's people through Christ is only possible through the sinful rebellion of mankind? by putting him on the cross to begin with. That's the culmination of this. But here we see uh, the beginnings of the same sort of thing, that God is even going to use sinful activities to turn human history toward the fulfillment of his redemptive plan. And what we do know is that this is the beginning of a veiled prophecy that the people of God who will be known as the, the Shemites or the Semites, right? Would one day conquer the descendants of Ham, that is, the Canaanites. And remember, as Genesis was written, that is what the Israelites are about to do in their history as they enter the promised land. This passage reveals the theological basis and the moral justification for what God is calling them to do in wiping out the Canaanites. Now that idea continues to develop then as we get into verses 26 and 27. And we see Noah's blessing on Shem and Japheth for their loving and honorable response to his sin. 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. I want us to notice, first of all, that the blessing ultimately is directed above all to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And the name that is used here for God is Yahweh, the Lord, 
once again highlighting God's covenant relationship with his people and his deliverance of his people. Here I think we see some evidence of Noah's repentance and his restoration to fellowship with God after his sin. He turns and blesses the Lord. But then we see through this covenant-keeping God, this Jehovah God, through him we will see a blessing on Shem. And through Shem, get this, we will see a blessing on Japheth. That's the idea behind that phrase that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. God is, or, or, or Noah here in, his, in this blessing and in this even prophecy is, is setting Shem up as a source of blessing to Japheth as well as a conqueror of Canaan. And with all of this, I think, if you're thinking ahead in Genesis, your thoughts go forward to Genesis chapter 12, where we see the covenant of God with Abraham. When God promises that Abraham, a descendant of Shem, and his descendants, the Israelites, would be a blessing to the whole world. That's part of the substance of the Abrahamic covenant. That through your offspring, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all the earth. And as we read on throughout Scripture, that is a promise of a Messiah who would come into the world through Israel and become the Savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. Noah states it as prophecy here. God will state it more fully as a promise to Abraham. And through his line, this line of, of Shem would come a blessing to all the world. A blessing to the descendants of Shem, yes. A blessing to the descendants of Japheth, yes. And get this, even a blessing to the descendants of Ham. And already, the promise of a deliverer from chapter 3, verse 15, is starting to take shape. With the expectation that the line of Shem would be a dwelling place or a blessing to all the other descendants. And by the way, after chapter 11, as we start getting into chapter 12 and beyond, the focus, sh the focus shifts in Genesis to that specific line and the fulfillment of God's promises. God clarifies and develops that expectation into a promise with Abraham, this is the developing story of God's redemptive plan to save his people from their sins, to make all things new. And the ultimate fulfillment of all of this, as you trace that storyline all the way through Scripture, is where? We find it in the Gospels. That fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. You see, Noah wasn't the, del the, the deliverer. Abraham wasn't the, the deliverer. David wasn't. Solomon wasn't. The prophets weren't. But the story is progressing to Christ, who is the Deliverer. This is the Gospel. This is the beginning of recognizing that man is a great sinner. Even the most righteous among us, man is still a great sinner. But there is hope. There is hope from God. There is hope in Christ, our great Savior. Passages like this one are meant to keep us from putting our hopes in men like Noah. They are to leave us longing for more. They are to give us a taste of that deliverance, but to long for its fulfillment. They are meant 
to make us look to the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to verses 28 and 29, which give us some concluding details of the passage, but they also give us a glimpse of hope for the future. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. Well, that's great hope. What are you getting at here? Huh? And he died. These verses are the conclusion to the genealogy that began back in chapter 5. You remember that? One, gener one generation after another. Right? He fathered this son, then he lived this many years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's the constant drumbeat of human history, isn't it? And he died, and he died. But there is hope and encouragement here. Though we just read about Noah's sin in the latter portion of his life, we also see that Noah's hope was still in God, and we also see that he lived 350 more years you know what that means? In that genealogy of long lives from chapter 5, Noah is still the third oldest person in the line. God didn't cut his life short because it wasn't marked by sin, right? God gave him a full and rich life. That is a long, long life. That's long blessing. That is a long influence on the world. Think about it. Noah was born only 14 years after the death of Seth. As far as I can tell, if you trace his life through the, through the lineage, his life overlapped Abraham's by about 35 years. There aren't too many gaps in this chain from Adam to Abraham. And Noah was a key part of that lineage. That's a long life. That's a long influence. And in the end, it was not his sin that marked his life. But it was his righteousness through faith by God's grace alone. And that in contrast to him. What do we remember him for? This. And in it all, in it all we see that God's promise and God's plan of salvation is still on track. After all that the world has faced, after the murders that we've seen, after the rampant ungodliness before the flood, to the complete and utter destruction of the earth, nothing has pushed God's plan of salvation off its track. And nothing will. Not even the sinful failures of mankind can overrule God's saving purposes. Why do you need to know that today? Because the success of the church your growth in godliness, and the ultimate fulfillment of every single promise God has ever made is not in the slightest bit dependent on what you think needs to happen in your life. It is not the slightest bit dependent on what happens on November 3rd. You see? We tend to think that if one candidate or the other gets elected, that all, all the earth is going to fall apart. Well, you know what? Let's tease that out for a moment. What if that's true? Well, all the earth has fallen apart before. And it didn't make a dent 
in God's plan. Did it? You see? This points us to a hope that is so much greater than anything we find in this earth because it puts our hope squarely in the hands of a sovereign God. And when God makes a promise, He finishes. He fulfills it. He keeps it. So what are we to take away from this passage this morning? Aside from that. That was an aside, by the way. This, this passage isn't about politics. <laughs> what else do we take apart from this? Look at the bigger picture. Human beings are sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. Even the best of us still sin. And because of that, we are not of ourselves right with God, and we are not able to approach Him at all. And if that were the end of the story, then we would all be, of all people, the most miserable. Because we're wasting our time here this morning, right? But that's not the end of the story. What this passage also teaches us is that God is a faithful God. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He judges sin and He judges sinners. But He saves his people. He saves those who enter into covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ by repentance and faith. And at the end of it all, those who do not come to him by faith will be marked by their sin and they will be condemned. But those who do come to him by faith will not be marked by their sin. They will be marked by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be saved. And this is the heart of the matter. We live in a world that is infested with sin. We are people who are infested with sin, but there is a faithful God who makes all things new. And what we are meant to see here is that this God with His salvation plan is our only hope. And that Jesus Christ, the promised deliverer, is our only hope. Savior. And we are meant to put our hope, our trust, our confidence, our very lives squarely in His hands. And from there, no one can pluck us out. My friends, is your hope in the one Savior, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning? Are you looking to Him today by faith? Let's bow our heads in prayer.